Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Mason. Hello. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Nate Hopkins. Hi there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Another quick shout out about Max Coders, maxcoders.io. We have a special guest this week, and that is Graham Consit. Howdy. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. You want to just give us a brief introduction since we haven't talked to you before and let us know why you're awesome? Sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Like you guys said, my name is Graham Consit. I've been a developer for about, oh, I don't know, 12 years. And for probably the half of that, I've been uh, doing Ruby and Rails. Currently, I work for a company that does large format touchscreens. And our entire backend is for uh, these installations is built in Rails, serving up lots of requests as an API. But I think today, we're mostly talking about JavaScript, right? Yep. Yeah, I have a whole show on JavaScript that I do every week. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes and how it deviates, I guess, from the conversations we have over there. You want to just give a brief background as far as what we're talking about here? You gave a talk at RailsConf 2018, Old School JavaScript in Rails. Yeah. One of the things that I've experienced in the last, I know, four years or so, and I think that I'm not unique in this way, is uh, the JavaScript fatigue that uh, has kind of entered in. We have new frameworks. I don't know, it seems like every week and there's there's no clear winner. And we often feel compelled to reach immediately for something like a React or View when we start a Rails project. Part of the RailsConf talk was about how you know there's a lot of strategies for doing JavaScript in Ruby and in Rails that existed prior to those frameworks. And sometimes if you're feeling a little tired or maybe in a break from the to include React in your Rails project, there's a lot of ways you can accomplish what you want to get done without necessarily bringing those dependencies in. So the talk walked through sort of how to do a lot of stuff that makes the app feel native, or not native, uh, feel like a single page app without you know bringing in a whole React, React router, all of that stuff that goes with it. Right. Yeah, it seems like a lot of apps are heading in the direction of using a front-end system, you know, React, Angular, Vue are kind of the big ones. You know, we, we were talking before the call a little bit about Svelte as coming in. We did a recent episode of React, or sorry, JavaScript Jabber, where we talked about Ember and the new version of Ember. And so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot going on there. And it's interesting to see just where some of this stuff is is going. So, yeah, how do you build a quote-unquote modern app without putting modern JavaScript in it? That's an interesting question because I think there's always going to be a little bit of modern JavaScript, so to speak. You just don't have to go whole hog right off the bat. It's kind of about evaluating the problem you're trying to solve and, and picking the best tool for the job. 
And sometimes that uh, might be bringing, you know, reactifying your whole Rails app. Otherwise, other times it might be doing just a single page or maybe reaching for something like stimulus or even some good old inline JavaScript. It's about knowing you know, when, when to introduce the new stuff and, and when to kind of fall back on the old stuff. So yeah, there is an appropriate time then to pull in the Reacts and Friends? I no. think so. Don't do it. For, I think so. You know, there's there's always a reason to do something, right? And for me, it oftentimes it comes down to to what the user wants. And if you have a, a really complex multi-page interaction that you know requires updating things across resources, really providing like an almost native feel then it might make sense to, to introduce a, a React or a Vue there. But I think all of them can coexist side by side. You don't have to you know, pick one strategy and, mm-hmm. and run down that road as hard as you can. Yeah, I think in fairness too, there's a whole class of developers now that have kind of come up with all of this, you know, quote, modern JavaScript. And really they may not know that there's a different way that there's an alternative to just picking React or something like that and pulling it off the shelf and starting there. The other thing I think that a lot of teams don't consider when they grab for the, or you know, reach for these things is the implications that it's going to have on their team dynamics and you know how many people they're going to have to hire to support it and all that sort of thing. So those types of considerations should be weighed when, as you choose a strategy to employ here. And I think that's the important part, Nate, because when we talk about staffing and growing our team, is the company willing to spend it? So if the technology stack you are going to go with, is it going to inherently increase the number of developers you have to have on your team in order to support that tech? And if it does, so if you want to be like Facebook, then you need to spin like Facebook. And if you're not willing to spin like Facebook, then you shouldn't be using the same text that they're using, which requires you to have to spin like them. I I don't know if that's necessarily true. I, I think the more I talk to teams and the more that I work with different teams and, you know, coach different developers, the more I come to feel that the technology does drive some of this, but a lot of it really is in the way that the teams are organized, the way that the organization runs the way that they approach problems. And some of that's going to be technology, sure, but some of it's going to be other stuff. And that other stuff is the stuff that really matters. And so if you have a team that's going to thrive with a React, you know, on top of Rails, then then, then great, go for it. But uh, I don't think every team does. And I think the problem that we see is a lot of times we see teams that actually try and use frameworks like React or Vue or whatever where in reality they'd be better off going with something else because it more fits the paradigm that they're trying to work under. Not necessarily because it's the size of the company or the the way that, you know, those technologies affect the stack. It it has a lot more to do with the way that the technologies affect the developers and the way that they work. Yeah, and I think that's fair. I really mean, and maybe I should rephrase it a bit, when you add in React or Vue as sprinkles into a Rails application, so you're still keeping the action view and you're just pulling in just one small component, making it React, I think that's a little bit different. That's making a choice saying, hey, we need a highly reactive and interactive front end. 
So, but it's really only this one portion, this dashboard uh, widget or whatever that we want to be really interactive. But I think my point kind of still stands when you make the shift from splitting your Rails application to now being API only and having a fully secondary React front end or something like that. So if it's done properly or if it's done with the business need in mind, instead of let's use whatever is cool, then I think there is more justification. For the project I'm working on now for my my day job, our our Rails app is set up to be, it's a 90% of it is a very large traditional Rails app using a little bit of stimulus, mostly Rails remote UJS. And it's basically a giant content management system. There is one one page that has a massive amount of React components on it, which is just one one component of the the front end. The rest of it is traditional HTML views with uh, turbo links and a lot of other things to just make it easy to maintain this big kind of bottom iceberg for the back office staff. And then the JavaScript is just in the one consumer facing portion. And that's been a really nice way to to break that down, at least for us, and kind of fits in with what you were saying. I'm I'm curious, Graham, did you try doing it the other way? I guess you have a little bit of both, right? You have the the big React app, and then you have the everything else app. We we have a few React things that made it into the I'm going to call it the CMS portion and the front end portion. A few React things mm-hmm. that made it back into the CMS portion, and during the very early days, there was a little bit more traditional UJS stuff in the front end. But as requirements changed and we needed more user interactivity, uh, more custom gestures and things like that, it became clear that moving to React as kind of the entry point for that consumer-facing portion was the way to go. But it's it's a single page, so it doesn't use... just It's just that one HTML view and there's no no router or anything like that. It's just a, a highly interactive single page. And then the rest of the app is regular HTML Rails. You know, I've got experience with a company that did something similar where we had elements of the application that we pulled React into. And it worked fairly well. But to, to Chuck's earlier point about kind of the way companies are structured, the, the way they want to communicate or the way they want to work, a technology choice like React can start to impact those things within the company as opposed to just trying to morph your technology choices to the way the company communicates or operates. Sometimes your technology choice can influence that aspect of the business. And it can, especially if there's, if it's a, if you've got people that are, you know, political or jockeying for position or control, it can, it can actually turn into uh, kind of an interesting dynamic within a company have you been able to kind of keep it isolated to that page or, or have you been tempted to pull React into other aspects of the application? There's a few little places that have where React has crept into the, the rest of the app. But I think part of what has, and I think you raised really good points about the, the team dynamic piece. I think one of the things that's really helped us is having a document in the team charter that says, here is when and why we use these things and feel free to challenge them. But this is kind of our, our approach. And, and even in picking React, we outlined, you know, this, we could have gone view, we could have gone, you know, backbone or anything like that. But we said, we think there's more React developers in this area for when we're hiring. And 
we think there's more Rails developers here who prefer to use React. So we took team and hiring into account, but then also made sure that there's you know, a place where somebody can go in our review to say, okay, I understand why we did it this way and uh, encourage people to challenge it when they need to. I got to say, I really like that. I think that's definitely something a lot more companies should be doing. Just saying, hey, we do this. This might be considered controversial, but here's why. And if you ever have a question about why, here it is. And if you want to argue about it, make sure that you're addressing the points that this document is laying out as to why we're using it. We like to put readmes in in every folder where we feel like we need to explain something or, or rationalize something. And it's nice if you're using GitHub or GitLab when you're browsing the code, they show up and kind of offer that that why we're doing this section that way. I'm curious, yeah. Graham, how large is your team? We are very small. I would say it's a team of about five people right now, but only a couple of us are doing active development. We're, we're hiring more. So if anybody is, inter- is interested in the job, I can uh, throw that out there. Uh, we are doing some remote. And, but this isn't my only experience doing uh, React as a piece of the front end. I, uh, a previous company I worked at, um, a much larger team size, much larger company, had um, like a small React front end, very similar to this pattern with a, a Rails CMS behind it. So it's a pattern and a set of challenges I've, I've seen a couple of times. Did you find that the the dynamics between the two different experiences you've had at different companies when different team sizes like played a role or had an impact? We have the charter on the small team because of you know some stuff in the larger place. Um, that's that's kind of what uh, what led to it. It's uh, when you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, um, you know, I think those problems come up more. So, but it's also just in you know outside of the conversation on. You know, React and Rails and JavaScript. I think having a firm, like being able to build a consensus as a team, is is something really important, and you know, kind of help, helps to head off some of those those contentious issues that you were referencing. One thing I'm curious about, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about both of these approaches, and you've seen both of these approaches. What are the real trade offs? I mean, we've talked a little bit about organizational and you know, consensus building and things like that, but. Are there actual technical trade-offs, you know, as far as maintainability or ease of implementation or support or things like that? And then, you know, just the the things that you have to know, the learning curve, all of that stuff. I mean, where do they fall out one versus the other? Sure. Well, I mean, as somebody who spent three hours trying to upgrade Webpack here last week, I can tell you there's, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's sorry. certainly tooling trade-offs. Um, but, I mean, so just to use an example, Let's say you're using some traditional Rails remote forms or, or UJS that falls nicely into your existing uh, feature functional testing framework. You can still click on stuff and, and you can do that with React or Vue as well. But some of the interactions become so complex, you really have to bring in a different testing framework on the front end, either a Jest or a Cypress or something like that. So Beyond just Webpacker, you incur tooling and process overhead for uh, testing these things. And I don't know if I've ever seen anyone try and test like a fully fledged, uh, complex React front end with Capybara and RSpec. I'm assuming it's possible, but I just I don't see too many people doing it because of how slow it is with all of the various interactions you need to test in those those full single page apps. 
So certainly one of the two trade-offs is, is tooling. I think there's, we have a, a designer, a designer developer on staff, front end developer. And uh, React is definitely a much bigger learning curve than say doing regular HTML, CSS. Um, there's so many rabbit holes and gotchas, you know, beyond just the, if you're familiar with React, there's this change where you, you know, every div span or whatever it's not, you can't put class equals whatever it's class name because it corresponds to a DOM property. And then also just there's far less conventions around React than there are Rails. So you realize that you're going to have to invest time in, uh, once again, coming to that consensus as a team and sort of implementing your anti-bike shedding uh, practices um, that you don't necessarily have to do in Rails. And in Rails, you can just say, hey, team, we're going to defer to the Rails conventions. Whereas in the React readings and docs themselves, they, they say, start off with any directory structure you want and uh, revisit it later. So I would say major overhead in tooling process and uh, you know, testing as well. Choosing one of those full stack front ends and everything that comes with it is an open invitation to the bike shed. Like bring your paintbrushes and your paint and let's debate. Does, doesn't uh, Webpacker help with some of that though? It does to a degree, but one of the things that's interesting about Webpacker that I've noticed in, in upgrading it, as I, I mentioned over the course of several hours, you know, you now have the kind of Rails piggybacking on some of the JavaScript community conventions. And, you know, it's Webpacker actually pulls in a number of, of third-party plugins to Webpack. And, you know, they seem well-intentioned, but it's sort of, once again, rail, Rails kind of is no longer writing the rules. It's, it's using the, it's kind of the whims of the JavaScript community mixed with what the Rails core team finds, finds important. So you still find yourself debugging uh, random plugins that come by default if they break and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, I'm curious. NPM dependency problems. No, no. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I almost put a... a line item and uh, talk about that for things to discuss. It's, it's still one of those things that's pretty pretty wild to me, even after being in the uh, Node ecosystem for a while, just how many dependencies everything has and how little some of them do. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. It's something that they talk about in the JavaScript communities too. Sorry, what were you saying, Andrew? No problem. I was going to say, you mentioned um, UJS and I said UJS, not VUJS. I realized that I could have. Yes. And I wonder if we could talk about that a little bit if you're up to it. Because I don't think, Absolutely. I think it gets mentioned a lot, but I don't think we've ever really talked about what it is, how you can use it, and really the power that it can unlock. Sure. And this was kind of what my RailsConf talk was, was on. It was showing how to build uh, some interactions, which previously may have seen, you know, impossible using regular request response HTML, but Rails re- includes a number of helpers that they call, uh, U- they abbreviate as UJS, which stands for unobtrusive JavaScript. And these are hooks that you can add to various buttons, various components that are all, you decorate with the data dash attributes, and then Rails will enhance with certain functionality. So for example, you can make a form and you can set it to uh, remote true, and it will be posted with 
AJAX, you know, asynchronous requests, and you can render a response back. And then the JavaScript in your response will be evaled and update your page. So it's kind of a nice way to, you don't have to change very much of your regular static HTML front end code. And you can introduce some nice interactivity that at least feels to the end user like they're in a single page app. I tend to use it a lot for request-based stuff. That's, as I just mentioned, the remote forms or remote links or things like that, where you need to respond to kind of favorite a a post or a a delete, and then do something on the, the front end to update that. I have to say, when, when I saw UJS in the list here, I was like, wait, there's still UJS? Because I remember the old jQuery UJS stuff that you, we used to have in Rails right. 3. Well, Rails actually, it, it's still there. It no longer depends on jQuery. They rewrote all of the parts that uh, were jQuery dependent, which is kind of another nice thing about it now in, in 2019. Is, so we use UJS heavily in, in our app here, but there's, there's no jQuery in sight. So you still get a lot of that good Rails functionality without needing to bring in a big kind of archaic library. Yeah, I'd say the other point is that it's it comes bundled with Rails. It's just in the box already. Mm-hmm. Like when you need that functionality, it's it's right there and you can you don't have to reach very far for it. And you really can build like far more interactivity and in, like if you combine U- Rails UJS with TurboLinks, you will be amazed at how far you can push it. Exactly. And, and that's the thing I think is important is if you have, take a real user-centric look at the application you're building, many of your users, depending on who your audience is, aren't going to know most of the time that they're using a React versus Rails UJS. That's that's purely a, something for your developers a lot of times. So I think the fact that it comes out of the box is, is yet another reason to, to maybe try and see how far you can get with it before bringing in additional dependencies. Yep. I never used it before and didn't even really know about it until one day Nate showed it to me. And I'm surprised because I think it's a super powerful tool, but there's not a lot of documentation out there. And I ended up basically going through and reading all the code to figure out everything that I could use. So yeah, that's why I wanted to briefly mention that because I think if a lot more people realize that they have this tool at their disposal, that they would be able to reach and would reach for it more. I agree. And I think maybe that that's a call to, you know, for help with updating some of those docs. I recently tried to look up information on just how to use the Rails Ajax wrapper from UJS um, standalone. And it's very hard to track down. I had to do what you did, which is just go read the source. So I don't know, maybe we can maybe get some docs going for that. I call that one a marketing fail. In the <laughs> I would love to see the documents pushed ahead where you can say, this is, this is how you might do it with Rails, UJS, and TurboLinks. And here's what it would look like if you did it in one of these other frameworks. And right. here's how close the fidelity gets, right? I, I think uh, you guys remember the old like O'Reilly cookbooks. I think it'd be great to have like a UJS cookbook to show you how to build all kinds of stuff and then kind of golf it down even and see how small you could get it. That'd be fun. So... We've kind of got a discussion point here, UJS versus stimulus versus, you know, Vue, React, Svelte, whatever in Rails. So let's start with the first part of that, uh, UJS versus stimulus, Uh, because stimulus feels like it's a step toward kind of the Vue, React, you know, kind of things, but it's not 
you know, it doesn't take over the whole DOM in whatever element you pointed at. So what are the trade-offs there and, and when do you kind of want to take that step forward? Yeah. And I think there's there's kind of even a third piece to that. There's there's the UJS and stimulus, and there's also the classic, the classic sprinkle, as DHH likes to call it, um, right. which is just a random a little bit of JavaScript you throw in there. Um, you use the DOM I mean, libraries and you say that element, event, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. And and there are a few of those in the, the app I'm, both apps I'm working on now. I tend to use the, I think, if I was to break these down into kind of three buckets, and, and this is just my opinion, I don't think there's a, a hard and fast rule, but for the, the small JavaScript sprinkles, I like to keep those focused on a single HTML element and bound to, say, a single event handler. So you might be able to inline some JavaScript for an on-click uh, event handler and do something for that element just to provide a small little you know, bit of niceness, either like a, you know, a lower pop-up or you know something of that nature to change the behavior of a link when somebody clicks it, something very basic. As I alluded to before, I think UJS works best when you kind of piggyback on top of that Rails uh, REST-related stuff. So, so much of the UJS library is, is centered around the, the request response lifecycle and then giving you hooks into that once the request either successfully completes or not. So when it comes to stimulus, uh, stimulus is much more about manipulating uh, parts on the page that maybe don't have a need for an asynchronous request, uh, a request response lifecycle. Like that last week, for instance, um, just implementing kind of a little mini inline editor that updated some some form values um, and gave you a little markdown preview. That made sense to do in stimulus because the process of submitting the form came later um, and it was a regular synchronous request. So that's sort of the three three ways I look at it: either single element, inline, quick and dirty. A request response related for UJS, and then stimulus is sort of coordinating multiple elements on a page, but they stay on that page and maybe don't concern themselves with a, a remote HTTP request. But yeah, it's it's not something that I that I would enforce if I, I saw it in our in our application. I think it's worth noting that I wouldn't really say UJS versus stimulus. Like kind of Chuck was started this question off. It's more like you can use UJS and you can use them in plain vanilla JavaScript or you can use them in stimulus, kind of like what you were saying as well. So you can use UJS in stimulus. You can use UJS in your vanilla JavaScript. Yeah, and that's that's totally correct and a great thing to, to point out. They're not, you don't have to pick one or the other. And just to clarify, when, when I'm talking about the UJS life cycles, they do have callbacks that you can hook into the the UJS stuff, which so you can do a little bit without necessarily making a stimulus controller and all that stuff. But no, you're you're totally right. They can they coexist peacefully. <laughs> hey folks, I want to tell you about a great system that I just found that has made my life a ton easier. That's Cloud 66. A lot of folks think that deploying is a pain. I kind of grew up as an ops guy, and so I never really felt that way until I tried Cloud 66 and realized that the way that I was doing it with Capistrano, pushing stuff up to DigitalOcean, it really was kind of a pain. And when things didn't work, I had to go in and I had to bang my head against the wall to figure it out. Plus, all the setup stuff was just a big headache. And what I found with Cloud 66 is that it's a really nice way just to get everything set up. I just told that I had a Rails app, and off it went. It set it all up. 
It does the deployment. And now that I have other developers working with me on PodWrench, which is what I'm using it for here, all I have to do is give them access and then they can go push the button for me and it gets deployed. It's really nice. It's straightforward. It has all of my environment variables in it. So I didn't have to do any setup that way either. I just had to go in, put in my AWS credentials and a few other things that I was using for third-party apps and it set it up and ran it. So if you're looking for a great solution for deployments, use the promo code RubyRogues. That's all one word, capital R, capital R, RubyRogues for $66 off Cloud66. This only works for new users, but man, it is awesome. So go check them out, cloud66.com. So if you were to give advice to a developer that's that's considering pulling in a front-end framework like React or Vue or something, what are the things to watch out for? So it would, would you start with UJS and then move, like and then pull stimulus in, and then if it still doesn't feel quite right, then bring in the front-end framework? Yeah, that's a great question. It's kind of something that um, I have a side project that I'm working on with a few other um, engineers. And we're in that position where we have an application that has stimulus, UJS, JavaScript sprinkles, a few React widgets, and God knows what else. But it doesn't really feel disorganized. And that's because, once again, we had a kind of a discussion about what feels right to use where. We have talked about moving a lot of it to, you know, kind of picking a winner in uh, a React or a view. And uh, we've been kind of punting on it. So to answer your question, I think it's, it's a, you should keep having that conversation with your team and say, are we, I would start with, a, you know, as minimal JS as you can use and then have a conversation with your team about how, you know, when it feels right to, to do it. I think one of the, at least for for me and for some of these projects, one of the times where it's the thing that's kind of forced the issue is we're saying, all right, we, we kind of want to explore what it's like to have a native mobile app. And one of the things that you know, React opens up is you can use React Native, which lets you write native apps with uh, React components through native apps. And then you might have this opportunity to share some of the code with your front end. So if it comes time for when a reactor review can truly be a, a time saver or a, a way to make your team scale better, that's that might be some time where, where I would consider it. But I think you're setting yourself up for failure if you're, you know, like most technologies, if you if you try to occult it and say, we're just going to use it right off the bat without really uh, discussing why. So it's kind of a roundabout answer, but I think you need to have a, you know, something that you can't do on your front end or without a reactor review, or there's a, a scaling implication for, for your team. I led a team where we chose React uh, for that reason, that we could also share some things with React Native. And it was earlier days for React Native, but the hype probably outweighed the you know, the promise of what we could share and what the, bene- the, the mileage we'd get out of making that choice outweighed the actual benefits we saw. Right. And I, I believe uh, Airbnb sort of ran into similar issues. They were early adopters and kind of walked it back. But not everyone was, you know, getting back to the conversation earlier, not everyone is, you know, has Airbnb size problems. So if you have bootstrapping a side project, trying to get it off the ground, and, uh, your customers are clamoring for, clamoring for a you know native app, uh, that might be a shortcut to get you there. 
Another interesting bit of tech to come out of that React Native camp is uh, React Native Web. I don't know if you guys have, have heard of this, but it's essentially you write React Native, but then it uses the React Native components to build you a web front end. So it's sort of like, you know, the chicken and egg, egg issue with React. So your stuff runs, um, you, know, you get your native components, but then you also get a website that's built out of those native components. Um, so it's it's a little hard to explain, but it's it's a way that you, once again, might be able to scale your team if out of the gate you need a uh, native mobile app and uh, you, know, you get a website for free if that's not, uh, if the web isn't your primary platform for your users. Yeah, I've been... Uh subbing as a co-host on react native radio which is another devchat.tv podcast and i've kind of heard mixed reviews like for some people it seems to work okay or at least give them a baseline that they can work from and other people it just is not what they need at all so it's another one of those we keep seem to keep coming back to this it's another one of those conversations you need to have with your team and make sure that everybody's on the same page as far as what your expectations are and what problems you're trying to solve yeah, and, and that's a great point, too, about what problems you're trying to solve. I think having kind of a, a ranked list of what's most important to you in terms of uh, what you're looking to have your tech accomplish to sort of help you realize when it's not meeting those needs. Uh, I think for in the case of React Native and React Native Web specifically, it's if you deviate from sort of the kind of stock, uh, you know, list view with the detail and you know, very basic sort of native app stuff, it's, it's not really going to work. If you have complex interactions or you know, if you're trying to build a game, it's, it's not, really, not really up to the task. So I'll throw uh, one shameless plug out there since your team is still on the fence about picking a winner. I'll give you another uh, option uh, to consider. And it's, a, it's an open source library called Stimulus Reflex, which is one that I am the creator of and maintainer of. But it essentially, is, it leans on stimulus and action cable to kind of get around the, the latency introduced by the request response cycle if you're making a full web request. So the communication all happens over WebSocket. And then the DOM will update through Morphdom, and it's incredibly fast. And it's minimal, like it's very focused on developer happiness and minimal code. So you can build some really rich experiences with it with very little code. That sounds cool. It sounds really similar, and don't don't kill me for saying this. So that uh, Elixir project, that uh, Phoenix project, that had the uh, I think they used more time as well. Yeah, Phoenix stuff. Live View. Yes, yep. it was originally inspired by that. Like that idea is what kind of got me started on the project. Yeah, and it's if, pretty if cool. you're interested in that particular project, uh, Elixir Mix did an episode with I think it was with Chris and talking about that. So. One thing we haven't talked about is, I don't know, do you guys remember, uh, I don't know, when this stopped being supported? Remember RJS? It was a, a way to write Ruby that would execute JavaScript in the browser. Um, it must have been like back in the Rails 2 days. Yeah, that, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, but with all of the excitement around uh, WebAssembly, I was curious to see if at some point someone was going to attempt a, a Ruby to you know, ASM sort of bridge and uh, how effective it would be. Maybe it's just a terrible idea, but most of the time, if I can get away with writing Ruby, I'd rather do that than JavaScript. Yeah. Have you ever tried Opal? Just a little bit, but uh, do they have a, uh, a compiler that gets you to uh, WebAssembly? Or? 
No, but you can pipe it through your build pipeline and essentially write Ruby for all of your front-end you know, JavaScript-y pieces. It transpiles to ES5, right? Or browser-compatible JavaScript, yeah, yeah. anyway. I have seen someone use Wasm to like create a Ruby interpreter on the web. Like You could write... I don't know if that's exactly what you're talking about, but you could write Ruby, basically an online ID or compiler or whatever, and then it would use Wasm to compile and run that code. It's been so long since I've, I've looked at it. I, I remember being able to do like DOM manipulation with Ruby from the RJS stuff. It's, yeah, that's probably ill-advised, but uh, we talked about all the other other Ruby JSs that uh, seemed worth mentioning. <laughs> Yeah, I've never heard RJS until this exact moment, actually. Yeah, RJS was around a long time ago. And yeah, it was it was a really cool project, but it kind of felt like as JavaScript became more powerful and you had more options with it, I don't know if they just didn't want to maintain it to try and keep parity or what, but yeah, it was definitely a nice project to have around. Yeah, it predated CoffeeScript. Yep. And as writing JavaScript got a little nicer over time through CoffeeScript and then you know, ES5, ES6, and now our build pipelines, I think JavaScript has gotten palatable enough where you know it's not it's not too terrible to write. No, I think I think Babel helps a lot with that too. Yeah, Babel gives you a lot of options because you can configure it to be more or less whatever you want. I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is a lot of the frameworks out there are, you know, they're utilizing different compiled languages or whatever, like TypeScript or anything like that. Have you played with any of those systems? Or I have not jumped on the TypeScript bandwagon, so somebody else might be able to answer that question better. I do, uh, many years ago, was a uh, primarily a C-sharp developer, so mm-hmm. um, I understand the siren song of type systems on, on a couple levels. Doesn't do any of you guys have experience with it? I have touched it. I have tried it. Because I don't like JavaScript, I can't really say whether or not I like TypeScript. I like the idea of types, but I don't I think I would need to spend more time doing it because I've done a little bit of it when I was working on a Gatsby site and then I spent like two hours messing with rewriting actually rewriting stimulus reflex in TypeScript just to mess with Nate. But then I realized like two hours into it, I was like, you know, I I could be doing something way more beneficial with my time. I have played around with Flow a little bit, which is sort of like Facebook's progressive type annotation uh, library. I haven't really pursued it as something that I wanted to add to a project for, you know, day jobs and stuff. Once again, some of that just comes back to the tooling overhead, and you know it's 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 a team decision that you know everyone was kind of lukewarm on. So, have a lot of experience with it. I will say that because I don't find the majority of Rails developers testing their JavaScript outside of potentially maybe having some system tests or integration tests, I like the idea of TypeScript solely from the fact that it would basically guarantee more safety around it, especially in a Rails app where you're not very likely to be testing the, like running actual JavaScript tests on your JavaScript. That's a really great point. Yeah, the thing that I find that it 
solves more than anything else in both JavaScript and, you know, would solve in Ruby is sort of the, you know, that, that method doesn't exist on nil class kind of thing, right? Because you're, you basically guarantee that you're going to get something that responds in a particular way to the requests or messages that you're going to throw at it. That said, and the tooling, honestly, on TypeScript is amazing. But a lot of that tooling, you run it against your JavaScript and it works just as nicely. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, see, I see some benefits. I got fairly involved in the Angular community for a long time. I've since handed that show off and I've been playing more with Vue. But, and some of the DOM APIs like the web audio API and things like that. But it's nice in a lot of ways, but I found that on some of my JavaScript, it just really, like adding types to it wouldn't have gotten me anything, right? It's a trade-off on my time versus versus not. Now, if I got to the point where I was just as fast writing TypeScript as JavaScript, and you know the the setup in Webpack and stuff is relatively painless, it, you know there are a lot of examples that make it work. I might be tempted to put my project into TypeScript from the start, but I don't think I would ever rewrite a JavaScript project in TypeScript. Now I might rewrite it so that it fits into the module implementation that they have now in Node and in the front end so that it can import properly. But that's a different concern and it's not really TypeScript. So I'd rewrite it for concerns as far as usability. But as far as my time goes, I agree with Andrew's assessment in the sense that a lot of my code, it just really wouldn't add anything to it that I would get anything out of. But yeah, if there were some hairy parts of the code that it's like, look, I'm constantly having people pass stuff in or get stuff out that you know, don't line up with the interface that I'm expecting, then yeah, I might be, I might be tempted to build those pieces into TypeScript. And that way, if somebody throws something at it that doesn't expect, it can actually turn around and say, no, 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 you can't do that. Yeah, I don't think the TypeScript hype has really hit Rails yet or the Rails Ruby community at all. It's, it's a fight that happens in the JavaScript communities, though. Though it's interesting because in Angular, they fully embraced it. Like all of the examples are in TypeScript. If you try and write it in our web browser compatible JavaScript, you're in for some pain and nobody is really doing it. So nobody can really help you with it. With Vue and React, there are certain segments that have embraced it. And in React, they've also embraced ES6 or ES7 or ES2019 or whatever the flip the number is now. So you, you get a little bit more movement in that direction, but they haven't fully embraced TypeScript either. But a lot of people are getting mileage out of it because they can make guarantees about what they're throwing into or pulling out of their components that you know they weren't getting before. And so I think it's really app-specific as to what you're going to get out of it and whether the effort is worth it. Yeah, a fun little bit of trivia is Stimulus is actually written in TypeScript. The Basecamp team, at least the guys that are working on the JavaScript stuff, very much believe in you know employing TypeScript and type safety at the library level, not necessarily in their applications. Yeah. And at the library level, it makes a lot, of, lot more sense because you have a whole lot less control over what people are going to do with it. Yeah, they write a lot of their stuff in TypeScript. But the one thing they said they would never rewrite is tricks. They said yeah. that would just be way too painful. Yeah. And if I remember right, that's still CoffeeScript. And I think that's really what it boils down to, too, is what's the pain involved in the rewrite? What are you going to, what's the payoff? Yeah, my understanding about TypeScript was that you can, you can, you don't actually have to change your JavaScript code. If you just uh, pipe it through TypeScript, give it a TypeScript extension and pipe it through TypeScript, you will get some 
benefits from yes. that. And the reason is, is because it assumes a type annotation of any. It doesn't constrain what goes through those. But yeah, then it can make some assumptions and do some tooling for you. Yeah, plus the working with TypeScript and VS Code is just so nice. Yep. There's a reason for that. <laughs> VS Code's also written in TypeScript. Sure. I think TypeScript's written in TypeScript. Fun fact. I think it is. I think you're right. So I think yeah, I have so to stick to my Ruby. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, once we no, get Opal Dash Wasm, we'll be in good shape, right? You know, for some who do want to do JavaScript testing on the front end, or they have some kind of component that they want to test, I think one good way is to also adopt something like the action view components. So it's not really testing your JavaScript so much, and it's not really solving that problem, but you are going to be able to do a bit more of the front-end testing because you're now dealing with just plain old Ruby objects. But yeah, if I wanted to use TypeScript, then I would just stick with something like Swift or Objective-C or some something else to make... Make me bang my head against the wall. <laughs> so are there any, I, I guess, any stories or examples or things, you know, where we can actually say, hey, look, you know, uh, this is a project where I, you know, tried all these different approaches and this is the one that kind of settled on. It sounds like, you know, in Graham's case, at least at his work, they've kind of done all of them and kind of settled on different use cases for different areas. But yeah, I'm curious if anybody, including Graham, if you have other other use cases where you've kind of ended up with some of this stuff. Yeah, I think, and maybe I already covered this, but there was sort of a decision early on with that large backend CMS Rails piece where we just said, look, we don't have the the time or the manpower, person power to to deal with keeping this thing, you know, very slick, very super single page app kind of modern. We have a limited set of users for this piece. So we're going to keep it Rails. We're going to let Rails do what Rails does best, which is uh, ship stuff quickly. And and we're going to decide as a team that this is this is how we do this portion of the app. So we made that decision early. And I think if, if it didn't work out, we would have moved. But in this case, our instincts were, were pretty correct. We had a number of you know, pretty experienced Rails developers at the time. So we felt confident in that decision. But I think had we gone the route of saying, hey, let's try and make everything uh, reactified right off the bat, we probably would have moved back to doing it in Rails with a little bit of UJS sprinkled on top of it just due to time constraints and needing to ship stuff that was, you know, right, you know, really important to the user. I think that's another thing we haven't really... I don't know if we talked about it, there seems to be sort of this like front end FOMO, like fear of missing out on using React sometimes. I've heard, especially from a lot of younger developers, you know, they, they immediately reach for it right away and not because they necessarily have a need for it or even want to use it, but because they feel like they're not doing it right if they don't use React. I think it's, it's good to remember that shipping is a feature and Regardless of your experience level, your your company or your boss, your project are going to benefit from you getting working code out there and they don't care what it's written in. So you can be productive in what Rails gives you out of the box and you should not feel bad about not using the, the JS framework du jour. Mm-hmm. I think I've also, never felt bad about it. 
<laughs> I, yeah, I, I just want to say, as a younger developer, I don't have that problem. So if you have that problem and you're a younger developer, reach out to me. We can we can work through that. Andrew fixes the world. I love it. it sounds like a JavaScript support group. <laughs> I think that's what he offered. Anyway, one other thing that I've seen is that a lot of folks go through the boot camps and the boot camps teach them to do React. And so they think that's just the way you do web development. And so they, they don't really even you know, recognize that there's another option maybe with different trade-offs that's going to affect the way that, yeah, you operate in some of these areas. Yeah, I mean, I've run into that too recently. Uh, I mean, the JavaScript tooling landscape changes so quickly. It's kind of a whiplash. And I was talking to people who, who did go through boot camps and they stand up an app and not only do they immediately reach for React, but they reach for Redux, which is the library that does a lot of complex state management for React. And, uh, you know, not everyone's able to give you a good answer of why they need it or why it's an auto-include. And then you have to explain, well, React has introduced some similar features into the core library that overlap here. So you have to know when to use what. And it's another case where sometimes just uh, sticking with your um, the, what Rails gives you will really help guide you kind of when you don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. There's uh, NGRX for... Uh... Angular. And, you know, it does a lot of the same things that Redux does. And they tell people specifically to only pull it in when you know you need it, because it it's complicated and it doesn't solve the right problems for all apps. And so I think that's an interesting angle on it, too, where, yeah, you're you're given this stack, you're told this is the way you have to do it. And then it turns out that in a lot of cases, you know, you could keep a really simple object in memory and just kind of hit it without all of the constraints that they put around it for Redux. And since your state is so simple, you don't need any of the solutions out there. So, yeah, I agree with you there, too. All right, well, we're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there any other angle on this that we should go and pound on and be old curmudgeons about before we get to picks? I'm not old, Chuck. Don't don't <laughs> hit me with that label yet. Yeah, that's right. Young curmudgeon is what I prefer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's because you've been spending so much time with Nate and Eric. All right. (laughs) One of my favorite communities in programming these days is the Angular community. Every time I go to an Angular conference or meet up with some of my friends who are in the Angular community, I have a great time. And a lot of them have wound up on Adventures in Angular. So if you're doing front-end development, you're looking for a way to keep current on the Angular ecosystem, and you want to have a good time listening to fun people talk about great topics related to Angular, then go check out Adventures in Angular at adventuresinangular.com. All right, let's go ahead and do some picks. Nate, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I do. Let me pull up my notes here. So I wanted to just throw out the book I've recently finished called Company of One, Why Staying Small is the Next Big Thing. It's by Paul Jarvis. And I listened to it on Audible and it was fantastic. And it kind of offers an alternate viewpoint from this uh, VC business model and rapid high growth and all the pressures that come with VC. Just talking about giving a a counterpoint to that of operating small and with the intention to stay small. So I really enjoyed that. Don't necessarily agree with everything, but uh, it's it's generally or typically my my mindset that I apply to most stuff. And the other one uh, is a podcast kind of similar. Well, I don't know if it's really similar to this one because sometimes they're not so technical, but Indie Hackers 
is a fantastic podcast and a fantastic site. If, if you haven't spent any time there, it's highly recommended. Uh, they have a lot of good conversations over there. You're the second person to pick that podcast on a show that I've been on in two days. So nice. Interesting. Dave, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, sure. So the first pick is We Do 2.0. It is made by Lego and it is aimed for kindergarten to second grade children for learning programming and making Legos. So you basically program a little programmable brick and it can do some stuff. So it's kind of a hefty price tag, but you know, it's Lego. So that kind of comes with it. It's like 200 bucks, but super cool if you have youngins and you want them to get into STEM stuff. The other one is N8N, which is a workflow automation. They offer a self-hosted thing. And Chuck, I know you used something like Ninely or something Zapier. like that for workflow. Zapier, yeah. So it's basically a self-hosted free option of that alternative. So I've been playing around with it. It's pretty cool. It has some awesome integrations. And I got one of those up and running on my local cluster at home. Nice. This WeDo looks really cool. Andrew, what are your picks? So the first one is a GitHub action called Publish to GitHub Action, which is an action that allows you to push any local file changes back to master. So I see a lot of implications for this, not specifically with the way it's set up now, but the ability to kind of change this to allow you to push to your own branches and things like that. So I'm kind of excited to dig into that a little bit more. Uh, the second thing is I recently came into contact with a guy named Steve on Twitter and we were chatting back and forth and he told me he runs this app. It's called justdunning.com and he was asking me some Rails related questions and I had no idea what Dunning was until he explained it to me. So I think it's a pretty cool concept. The app is pretty cool and he's just like one guy. So if you need Dunning support, I think you should check it out. It's justdunning.com. Awesome. I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. The first one is the St. George Marathon. Ran my first marathon on Saturday. Yes, I still hurt. Only when I move. It's, it's getting a lot better, but yeah, I'm still, I'm, I'm really tired too. But I think a lot of that's just because I've been running around taking care of a lot of other things uh, since getting back. But yeah, it was, it was terrific. Uh, essentially what they do or where this marathon runs is they take you uh, up the canyon above St. George, and then you just run down the canyon. The, the entire course has about a 2,500-foot elevation drop as you run. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some really nasty hills in the middle of it, but uh, that you have to run up, or in my case, hike up. But yeah, really, really enjoyed it. It's funny, I got back. I was trying to recover enough to drive back to the condo that we were staying at, and uh, I got real excited about doing another one. So I'm going to find another marathon to run. So if you have a favorite marathon that runs in March, April timeframe, let me know. I've, I've been kind of looking around to see what I can find. There are a few here in Utah, but I can't decide if I want to do one here or do one that's kind of abroad somewhere. Anyway, so uh, yeah, if, if there's one that has like a really cool course that you run or some other aspect to it that's really cool, I'd, I'd appreciate the feedback. And then the other pick that I have, so as I've been pulling together things for maxcoders.io, and it's taking me a little bit longer than I wanted to, by the time this comes out, it's probably going to be a moot point. You should be able to sign up. But there's a website called Membersite Academy, and I've been using their walkthroughs to set everything up. 
basically it's going to have a forum. It's going to have, I'm planning on putting together some courses and some of the courses will be included in your membership. And some, some of them are going to be, you know, you can go and sign up for them and members will get a discount for sure. Anyway, it's, it's been really great to just kind of work through that. And it's kind of fun to set up something new. So I've been enjoying that. And then I've also, uh, I'm also going to pick OBS and twitch.tv. So OBS allows you to stream your screen or your camera or whatever to the internet. And I've been playing with doing some live streams. That's where the web audio API and some of this other stuff comes in. And I'm not very good at the web audio API because I'm still figuring it out. But uh, yeah, I've, I've been working on an Electron app and uh, been enjoying that. So I'm going to shout out about that. And I've been using Restream.io to stream it to Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, I think one or two other places. So anyway, if you're interested in that, I usually try and do it around noon mountain time. Sometimes it's a little earlier, sometimes it's a little later. But yeah, definitely uh, a, a cool way to go and just put those videos up. So yeah, those are my picks. Graham, do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Sure. I have some picks and then some shameless plugs. Hopefully that's okay. For picks, I have to, it's probably been mentioned before, but Basecamp's Shape Up, you know, it's been out for a while, but we've started using it at uh, my day job. And I have to say, it's really a refreshing process compared to uh, some of the more prescriptive Scrum stuff I've done in the past. So if you haven't read it yet, Definitely recommend even a quick perusal. In shifting over to the uh, the shameless plug space uh, side project, I'm working on with a few other people. Um, it is an app to help facilitate parent-teacher communication. Uh, you can find it at pigeonforteachers.com. Like helps with coordinating text messages to provide a more personal experience and hopefully improve student outcomes for high school students. And finally, uh, thanks for. Uh, uh, my day job for letting me take a couple hours and, and, and be on here. It's, uh, I work for ikesmartcity.com. I alluded to earlier, we do some large interactive kiosks around the country. Um, these are big touch screens that, you know, run that uh, custom JavaScript or uh, React front end I mentioned, and it's all rails behind the scenes. So thanks to them for letting me come on and, and thank you guys. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, one thing I forgot to ask, Graham, if people want to follow you online or see what you're working on these days or anything like that, wh- where do they find that information? I don't tweet very much, but I do have uh, Twitter. Um, it's gconzit at Twitter. I also have, you can just email or email me directly um, if you want. And I guess we can put that in the show notes. But yeah, and then uh, the GitHub as well. It's just my last name. All right, cool. All right, folks, well, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Graham. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later. Yep. Everybody max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>